November 20th, 1920. A college football Saturday in Evanston. Notre Dame against Northwestern. The final home game of the year. The stadium's packed. The Chicago Union's railway tracks went beside the sidewalk by Northwestern Field on Central Street. It was the early days of city railroads, and sound regulations had yet to be implemented in Evanston, leading to an ear-piercing noise for the stadium's neighbors. Northwestern Field and the Central Street L station were only a few blocks away. There weren't enough parking spots for everyone in the tiny lot north of the stadium off of Ashland Avenue but the trains meant infrastructure was in place to support the hordes of fans heading to 1501 Central Street. Little retail shops and small-scale restaurants lined the sidewalk, and the eclectic shops created a small-town, vintage feel. As the stadium grew closer and closer, the crisscross pattern that made up the wooden grandstand came into view. The timber gave it a homelike and hospitable look, something like a log cabin. Grass surrounded Northwestern Field, and it was the perfect place for kids to pretend they were the ones competing on the field with the best in the Big Ten. Children had the chance to meet some of the stars of Northwestern football on nine game days, since the stadium and the freshman football field east of the stands doubled as a practice facility for the Wildcats. Northwestern Field had been around for 20 years by the end of its tenure and all those years of use led the structure to become unsound and rickety. The splintered wood was a step away from becoming rotten. Northwestern didn't build the stadium to last. But fans were rocking bleachers at Northwestern Field anyway. There were 20,000 of them in the stands on Central that fall Saturday to see the Wildcats play Notre Dame in just the fifth all-time matchup between the two teams. It was so full that Northwestern needed to add overflow seating. Fans packed the general admission sections behind each end zone, and even with the quarter-mile track around the field pushing everyone back a few yards, it was like a concert atmosphere. Every bench seat was occupied by a fan, all standing in support of Northwestern. The university could have sold tickets to the baseball diamond behind the stadium and probably sold them out. Football in Evanston was more than 100 years younger, felt 100 times more popular than in the present day. Some fans on the west side needed to dangle their legs over the front railing to fit in with the massive crowd. The Cats got creamed by Notre Dame, 33-7, but the score didn't dampen the atmosphere. Diehards filled the stadium. The contest set a new attendance record for the football program which was becoming more lucrative by the day, despite a lack of success on the field. The university needed a new facility, so it shocked almost no one when they announced a rebuild. It all seemed so simple. 
Northwestern University planned to update its too small and rundown stadium to fit the times. College football was starting its journey to the behemoth that it is today, and Northwestern, eager to take advantage of the soaring popularity of the sport, wanted to build up its facilities to be one of the premier destinations in the game. Not to mention, it would have made them boatloads of money. They had the means after business manager at the time, Willie Mae Dyke, arranged for a bond issue to fund the $1.4 million field. It would have 80,000 seats in three tiers, the first with that many levels. Initial concept drawings featured towers on the east and west sides simultaneously serving as archways into the stadium. Some called it a Grant Park Bowl for the North Shore because of its gothic similarities to Soldier Field. There should have been no controversy. And there wasn't. The university quickly got approval for the stadium and began work in the spring of 1926. Dyke, who graduated from Northwestern in 1882, surveyed the site and oversaw construction. Budget constraints prevented NU from fulfilling its ambitious plans for the stadium, but the result was still impressive. A concrete arena was 702 feet long on the east and west sides, with the ends open because of the budget issues. There was everything the team needed to function underneath the stands. Practice field, locker rooms, showers, and almost every amenity imaginable. The capacity was around 37,000, but temporary seating was available behind the end zones if the stadium's size needed an increase. At the final home game of the 1926 season, the university renamed the field Dyke Stadium in honor of the man chiefly responsible for making it happen. Northwestern's Board of Trustees claimed it would be the name of the stadium and any others constructed on the site for as long as the university existed. The name remained through a Rose Bowl win 1949 renovation, and three years of consecutive losses. Then, in 1997, it became Ryan Field. Apparently, perpetuity only lasts 70 years. I'm Mac Jones, and this is the Field of Broken Dreams. Heading into the 1996 football season, the Wildcats were coming off a Rose Bowl appearance and one of the most successful years in the team's history. With three sellout crowds the prior season, Evanston was again behind the team. 
Fortunately, the stadium had become decrepit and couldn't easily accommodate its newfound popularity. It suffered from a small concourse, awful turf, and unkept restrooms. The other spaces were no better. The indoor practice facility was just a 20 by 50 yard turf area in the north end of Welsh Rhine Arena. Northwestern was one of the best schools in the country academically, but athletically, they couldn't compete. Rick Morrissey, I was hired um, by the Tribune in 1997, um, and covering Northwestern football was my first uh, beat. Morrissey graduated from the school in 1982. The stadium was in just as poor shape then as in the 90s. The years of neglect were showing, and the last major renovation in 1949 wasn't doing it for the student fan base. Almost no one liked the place. Players hated the facilities. Head coach Gary Barnett despised showing recruits around because it was so bad. I, I have to be honest here. Um, you know, it was so bad, I hardly went to any games. And there weren't many. I, I Go back and look. I, I can't believe there were many people who went to the games. And, and, and the fans who did go were probably from fans of the other team. And it was, you know, that was that was right in the middle where they had, were setting an NCAA record for consecutive losses, whatever it turned out to be. Um, so I didn't go. It's Henry uh, S B I E N E N. This is Henry Bina, Northwestern's president from 1995 to 2009. And uh, no sooner did I get there than the. Um, uh, A.D., who was Rick Taylor, wanted to show me what was called Dyke Stadium. So uh, the stadium was in very poor shape. Elevators didn't work. There was, we went into the restrooms, and there was a kind of half inch of water in the restrooms. Ceilings were falling down. So it was very clear that the place re- needed substantial work. Beenan and the rest of the Northwestern administration created the Campaign for Athletic Excellence. It was a fundraiser project to raise money for a stadium renovation, a new indoor practice center, and other sports-related facilities. Tons of things needed lots of money to construct, and even with the football team's success, raising that much wasn't easy. Annual giving went up a little bit, but we started selling more T-shirts and sweatshirts, though, uh, again, people had illusions. Students would come to me and sometimes say, oh, you make so much money selling Northwestern paraphernalia. And I'd say, you're confusing Northwestern with Michigan. You know, I think Rose Bowl year, the revenues were maybe 800000 or a million bucks from a couple of hundred thousand. And then after the Citrus Bowl, they went right back down. I mean, we were never making a lot of money. The university didn't need to be, though. Patrick Ryan, the founder of the Aon Corporation and a billionaire, was chairman of Northwestern's Board of Trustees. Ryan contributed around $10 million to the campaign, raising the total to 28. With the money situation sorted, Taylor announced the renovation to the stadium's neighbors. 
there was a mixed response. But many in the Evanston area don't remember any specific controversy surrounding any aspect of the stadium. Okay, so my name's Daniel Kelch, and I own Lulu's Taco Diablo Five and Dime Blue Horse Tavern at 1026 Davis Evans. My parents lived right on Central Avenue, right across the street from the stadium, or just kitty corner to it. And they were, they've always been very supportive of it. My name is Kevin Vetter. I attended uh, NU from 1989 through 93. They did some seating renovation. You didn't, you didn't hear about it, you know. Beenan didn't recall too many pessimistic reactions either. But feelings were overwhelmingly negative among a portion of the Evanston community. Many felt Northwestern had gained more and more power over the years by subtly increasing its asks and then using precedent to argue for more. My name is Evie Russell. I'm the person who created the website and the person who has all the original material on which the website is based on up in my attic. Russell is an Evanston resident who has lived close to the stadium since she moved to the city. The material she referenced was for a website she helped create in response to the Campaign for Athletic Excellence, Spotlight on Evanston. The site documents the history of conflict between the city of Evanston, Evanston's residents, and Northwestern. It includes everything from NU buying cheap farmland to resell at a profit to the city in the 1850s, to a recent battle over for-profit events only a few years ago. I was very angry about that, and I did, uh, that's why I collected the material. We had a fight in 1996 with Northwestern. That's when I went to City Hall and to the microfish department and collected all the history that I could get my hands on it. It's a long history, and so that's why the old-timers like us who have been through this, or who are, who are reading the history, not convinced of Northwestern good intention toward the city. Russell's reasons are complicated and steeped in years of what felt like the city not listening and Northwestern not caring. It began in 1921. At that time, the city's zoning code for Northwestern Fields District stated the height limit was 35 feet, but it was changed to accommodate Northwestern. The new height limit was 80 feet for stadia operated and owned by Northwestern and used for educational or athletic purposes. It wasn't enough for the university. The original plans for Dyke Stadium had three tiers of seats, and those would have been impossible to fit under 80 feet unless they wanted fans' legs dangling in front of everyone's faces. When the city council deliberated the change in 1925, Northwestern argued that since Dyke Stadium differed from inhabited buildings, it deserved to be exempt from the 1921 ordinance. The city agreed and amended the ordinance, and NU continued its plans for the stadium. Even almost a century later, this decision frustrates Russell. Because there are people who uh, are either in the pocket of Northwestern, meaning that they either work for them or they have interests. There's, there's all kinds of uh, 
reasons that include incompetence, include uh, money under the table, interests, or if not outright gifts. In 1961, an elevator tower forced another ordinance change, justified as an extension of the previous variation. But the renovation in the 90s didn't need a modified ordinance, despite the stadium exceeding the new 125-foot limit by almost 20 feet. A homeowners group called North Evanston Watch appealed to the city, but nothing came of it. My name is Brian Cox, reporter for the Chicago Tribune. I covered uh, Dyke Stadium uh, when it happened back in the 1990s. People were a little bit surprised. It seems sometimes that um, a big uh, institution like Northwestern often gets what it wants when it comes to zoning. And, uh, you know, they've got a lot of lawyers. They've got a lot of people who used to work for the city who uh, now work for Northwestern. And uh, they have uh, they seem to get what they wanted. While Evanston residents were fussing over the height of the new stadium's skyboxes, Northwestern continued to make progress on the stadium. Time was running out before the season opener, and the university didn't want all of the season's games to be in Soldier Field. However, it was a challenge to keep the focus on the campaign for athletic excellence when there were so many other projects for Beenan and the university to keep track of. Even before I came, there was a big renovation of the Technological Institute that my predecessor had started. That renovation dealt with cost overruns and required lots of time and energy to ensure its success. The final cost at the time was $125 million, more than four times the Dyke Stadium renovation. One thing I was determined uh, from the experience of the renovation of the Technological Institute, don't let people change the plans midway. That's really expensive when you start, you know, altering whatever plan. That's a killer when you do that. The Dyke Stadium renovation had none of those problems. It didn't go too far over budget and was treated similarly to any other building's renovation on campus. To Northwestern, it was the same process, but with an athletic facility instead of an academic one. However, to some Evanston residents, there was a substantial difference because of parking. Another issue Russell had with the stadium and its history. Parking at the old Northwestern Stadium was only $2. That number steadily increased over the years along with the demand, but the size and quality of the lot didn't. Partially because Northwestern didn't need to comply with some city laws since they built the lot before the code was in place. If the university redid the parking, it would have been forced to observe the city's demands. This created a situation where renovating the parking lot would benefit Northwestern, the city of Evanston, and its residents, but the university didn't want to do it. Parking steadily got worse and worse. It was even difficult for people like Cox just trying to cover the game. They do have a shuttle service from different parts of the city and delivers them right to the stadium, so you can park like on the campus, which, you know, is a few miles from the stadium, mm -hmm. and uh, that helps. But still, yeah, on, on game days, forget about it. I mean, it's just a, it's just a traffic nightmare. 
and uh, you know the, the, the residential streets nearby are clogged with traffic and things like that. So it is, yeah, it, it is a bit of a problem. People parked illegally in neighborhoods around the stadium on the lawns of residents. Northwestern and Beenan couldn't overlook the problem, but there wasn't an easy solution. They couldn't expand the lot to other places in the neighborhoods because it was and is a residential area. They could only build up, and in many ways, that was even worse. You, you can't go underground. It's just unbelievably expensive. So I think the only alternative was to build vertically. I never very seriously considered it. It'd be hard to get in and out of that. It would slow things up. If the university constructed the parking garage, there would have been the same traffic flow issues as the current lot, but with three or four extra levels. A bottleneck would exist at each entrance and exit, and the building would have been more of an eyesore for residents than a stadium. So I was never very enthusiastic about it, and I don't know how seriously we considered it, but that would have been the only way in that area Besides, an above-ground garage would likely have frustrated Dyke Stadium's neighbors more than the current parking because of the traffic flow issues and lack of visual appeal. And Russell and other residents already have enough problems with the parking as it is. And there was no zoning uh, uh, done for the parking. So see, that's a problem. And this is something we did not, as a neighborhood, pay attention to. People are very upset about that. The renovation of Dyke Stadium didn't do much to fix the parking problem. And while the residents didn't fight on that issue, there was another one they grasped hold of. And then we had to go out and raise money for it. Part of the reason being in the Northwestern didn't have financial issues when renovating the stadium was because of the generous donation from Ryan and the university wanted to honor him in the same way they did for Dyke 70 years ago. You know, honestly, I can't tell you I was aware of everything Mr. Dyke did for Evanston or anything else. Um, I think, you know, you've got your name on a building for 40 or 50 years or 70 or 80. In this case, you know, more than 60. And somebody else comes along and puts the money up for it or you've got to tear it down. I could tell you it a lot that that's very common. In May 1997, Northwestern announced the name change from Dyke Stadium to Ryan Field. I was sort of roasted in the press. Cox was one of the people writing articles about the situation. A lot of people were, you know, a little bit taken back. They, they figured this was something that the stadium would always be named. But it seems like in today's uh, world, you know, if you have enough money, you know, you can have any stadium changed any, any name. Northwestern's former sports information director, George Barris, didn't think that should have been the case. He felt like the university was throwing away tradition by changing the name. And he returned to Evanston to make his feelings known. Bear stood outside the stadium, plucking petals off a symbolic rose. He chanted, Northwestern will not return to the Rose Bowl until the name is reinstated. 
he's an idiot. To be fair, Northwestern hasn't returned to the Rose Bowl after Bears placed his curse. Although he did lift it three years later when the Wildcats were in contention for a trip to Pasadena. Besides the curse, though, there wasn't much controversy among the general public. Many people weren't aware of Dyke's history as a part of Northwestern and Evanston, and they didn't react strongly. Morrissey, however, was curious if any of Dyke's relatives cared. And so um, I try to get in contact, uh, try to find anybody in the Dyke family just to see what they felt about it. And I got a hold of um, a grandnephew. I think his name is Skyler. And he didn't really care. Morrissey was going through the same process Northwestern did. The university attempted to find living relatives, too. Dyke's legacy mattered to the school, and Northwestern wanted to honor him despite the change. For example, Beenan offered to put in a plaque acknowledging the stadium's history. We went to all the living relatives we could find. I personally spoke to a bunch of them. Everybody was okay with this except for one gentleman. That gentleman's name was David Dyke, William's grandson. And he claimed Northwestern never notified him of the change. There were others, too, that the search had missed. Schubert Dyke, a Chicago resident at the time, was also apparently not included. David Dyke said the university's attempts were, quote, weak, since they didn't locate all the living relatives. Uh, David Dyke, who was the, I think, grandson that you were talking about, who was against it. Yeah. He said that you guys, like, weren't able to find him? That's not true. That's not my recollection. I mean, it's a while ago. That is not my recollection. We certainly, um, I -hmm. thought we reached out to everyone that we could. I mean, I I don't, I wouldn't want to swear, you know, on a Bible that I've got it right, that my memory is perfect. Mm -hmm. But, um I thought that everybody had been talked to or tried to talk to. He was not okay with it. And he complained to the press. My memory is that David Dyke, uh, William Dyke's uh, grandson, somebody had sent him my, my story and he called, he called me because he was upset and he said it's not just that they're changing the name um it's that i have i have the minutes of the meeting from 1926 where this is a proclamation from this the uh you know the board of trustees that the the, the stadium's going to call dyke stadium in perpetuity it, it, whether the stadium gets torn down or not a new one has to be called dyke stadium you know the, so you have on one side all, all these people who feel like you know, uh, you know, history is so disposable now. You know, mm-hmm. we can just wipe it away with with money. But Dyke's legacy is not defined by having his name on a stadium. He served as mayor of Evanston for a term, and as Northwestern's business manager in a period that saw the university go from a smaller scale liberal arts college to one of the best research universities in the nation. 
His name is no longer on the stadium. But his impact on the school lives on. The controversy eventually died down, and Northwestern carried on with the plan to honor Ryan as the stadium's new benefactor. The university rarely struggled to build things with Bean and his president. However, they couldn't understand some decisions made by the city. An argument that the city had made over the years, the city council, was that Northwestern had been taking buildings off the tax roll. Well, honestly, that wasn't true. Historically, Northwestern owned much more land and space than the current campus. Part of that was because the university bought cheap farmland and resold it to the city at a profit in the 1850s. But that practice ended years ago, and being in the Northwestern released land back onto the tax roll since then. So uh, right across the street from the Roycemore School was a, uh, a culinary school. They were leaving, and they wanted me to buy the space. And it's very close to the university. And um, it was tempting to buy for expansion. And A, I didn't want another hassle with the city. And B, I was very sensitive to taking, uh, and by the way, this space was already not for profit. I didn't buy the land. And they put up a lot of housing on that land. So it wound up generating taxes. Northwestern took the city growth idea literally. The east side of Sheridan Road is the side closest to Lake Michigan, with only the Northwestern campus and no residential area besides dorms. The university had fewer problems building over there partially because it didn't used to exist. At one point, the space was all underwater. Until Northwestern constructed the Lakeville, a large area of land reclaimed from Lake Michigan in the 60s by creating a wall of limestone blocks. Talks to expand the campus into the lake had been around for almost forever. The idea first surfaced in the 1890s, returned in the 1930s, and then Northwestern formally announced a plan in 1960. It took two years to get approval from the city of Evanston, the Illinois State Legislature, and even the U.S. Army. When the university completed the project, it almost doubled the size of the campus and became home to distinguished Northwestern buildings such as the Patrick G. and Shirley W. Ryan Center for the Musical Arts, the Norris Center, which hosts various student groups, the Kellogg School of Management, and numerous sports facilities. Beenan always considered the city's interests when making decisions for Northwestern to an extent, but Evanston wasn't making it easy. For example, when there was a disagreement over a zoning law violation on the west side of Sheridan Road, and that disagreement escalated into a much larger problem. Beenan threatened to take the city to court, which neither party wanted, but that was what he'd come to. Beenan, an arbitrator, and three city council members entered Beenan's office in a last-ditch effort to prevent a worst-case scenario from playing out. We sat and discussed what we we're going to do, and uh, we shook hands on an agreement. I, again, I can't remember the specifics of the agreement, 
And then the three of them went to the city council. And two of the three of them voted against the agreement they had agreed to in my office. Beenan got back in touch with the members, curious about their decision-making. And they said, well, when we were in your office, we were one thing. And we were, when we went to the city council, we were the city council. I said, you were in my office because you were the city council. You were not in my office because you were the boys' band, you know, or, or the heritage club or whatever it might be. I said, so this is ridiculous uh, that you shake hands with me and then vote against agreement you shook hands on. And I've been around local, state, national politicians a lot in my life. And I don't recall that happening before. It was less about the zoning issue and more about the city going back on its word. I can't tell you precisely what the zoning agreement was. I can't remember. But when 1800 Sherman was up for sale, spurned Bean and jumped at the opportunity to purchase it. And Northwestern did take it off the tax roll. The disagreement turned agreement, turned disagreement again, and had lasting consequences for the city. I'm happy to put money into the city, but what I won't do is subsidize your budget. Beenan didn't subsidize the city's budget, and instead worked on continuing renovations for buildings around Northwestern's campus, including the football stadium. Night games were another change brought about by the Ryan Field renovation, but it wasn't always supposed to be that way. At an event announcing the renovation, residents around the stadium asked athletic director Rick Taylor if there would be any night games at Ryan Field. No, we do not intend to play night games, he said in response to the question. Out of the 31 night games ever held in Rhinefield or Dyke Stadium, 26 were after the renovation. And Russell is well aware of that fact. But you see, Northwestern never says we will not and we will promise in writing. They say we have no intention. Dave Davis, in 2019, on on council or during the other meeting and said clearly we're not going to come back in two years from now and ask this of the stadium and in one of the meetings i told him you're perfectly honest you didn't come after two years you came after three years to ask so that's northwestern one of the worst things for some residents is that they didn't feel northwestern or the city heard them out that was true in the 90s and more recently, too. At city council meetings, Evanston residents get three minutes to voice their opinions on things happening in the city. If there are too many speakers, the council could cut that time in half to 90 seconds. Russell was frustrated by this, and she brought it up to Evanston's mayor, Daniel Biss. And he said to me, Evie? I don't think that the council floor should be a place for public comment. My name is Daniel Biss. We may be involved in the game of telephone. 
City council meetings are long, often extending over three hours. But there are also committee meetings and sections behind closed doors where the council must be present. If 90 people speak at public comment and all get the full minute and a half, that time cuts into the city's ability to make rational decisions before 1 a.m. Um, I think the meetings need to be managed in a way that respects everybody. But I, I'm going to stand by my position there. I think, I think you know, if we were to, to change the rule to allow public comment to go longer, there would be a very clear downside, both in terms of the work product of city council, which is like ultimately the most important thing, but also, frankly, the public not only has the right to give a comment, but also to watch the city council meeting. If meetings are going into the early morning after a Monday night, that limits who can watch the council and understand the changes coming to Evanston. Just because the state law obligates us to have public comment doesn't mean that's the best way for a member of the public to have their voice be heard. If you want to say a thing on the public record, in public, on YouTube, into a microphone at city council because you think it'll have a particular effect to do it that way, no harm, no foul. That's great. The state law entitles us to do that. But don't think that just because the state law entitles you to do that, that's the best way to get your point across. For people who want to have an hour-long meeting with me with back and forth, that's yeah. awesome. Send an email. I'll, I'll schedule it. Public comment isn't the place for that. The mayor and other members of the city council, to their credit, have been very open to discussing Ryanfield with anyone who reaches out. To Russell, that's not enough. People involved in this were mm. people like me who are not afraid to speak up and be um, aggressive in the speech. In mm. other words, they don't mince words. I discovered in 2019 people want to be polite. And you can't be polite to somebody who spits in your face. What are you going to say? Oh, I'm sorry, it's sort of wet. There was one time when residents spat back. It was January 1996, and Northwestern applied to amend an Evanston zoning ordinance to host a professional tennis tournament in Walsh Rhine, the Ameritech Cup. The tournament was WTA affiliated and played on indoor carpet courts at the UIC Pavilion, now Credit Union One Arena. The event was held every year from 1971 to 1997 in Chicago and featured iconic players like Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King, and Margaret Court. Some residents believed that if the university was allowed to host professional events, it was a slippery slope to higher capacity events such as a concert in Ryanfield. 1977, Northwestern attempted to host another tennis event, a world team tennis match. The tournament usually took place during the summer months, but that August was when the city council was going to decide if it could take place in Evanston at all. The Zoning Board of Appeals recommended that the council allow the match, but Evanston denied variation of the zoning ordinance saying that the change would detract from the essential character of the surrounding neighborhood, depreciate property values, and increase the danger of fire and public safety. Many Evanston residents and businesses wanted the same outcome with the Ameritech Cup.
Northwestern didn't see us coming. Russell went door to door with a petition against the tournament and collected signatures from around 90% of businesses in the 6th and 7th wards along the Central Street Corridor. Northwestern wanted a professional tennis and we opposed it and we won against Northwestern. The city council, influenced by Russell's petition, denied Northwestern's request to amend the zoning law. Evanston didn't know his professional tennis, and the tournament ceased to exist a year later. I was actually both surprised and frankly quite annoyed because um, you were not going to have 40,000 people. For that, you would have had a few thousand people. And at the same time, they wanted to have craft shows there uh, to use it. Uh, and, um, what, and after that, we disallowed a craft show, as I recall. Uh, it was a nuisance for us when we did it time to time to be accommodating. But, it, you know, you can't yeah. have it both ways. I'm a tennis player. Um, I, I was startled by it. I recall <laughs> it very well. You know, I mean, look, I found, honestly, the city very unpredictable. The stadium's neighbors couldn't replicate the result of the tennis tournament with the stadium renovation. There was no final push. And the university continued with its plans like a freight train. Unshakable. We were exhausted. We, that's, that's probably another reason why we didn't... We were, we were exhausted. I mean, we had this fight, which took us uh, months and months to fight. And when you fight it hard, you are exhausted. I don't think that we put up a great fight for the renovation. The only difficulty Northwestern found was making sure it opened on time. Northwestern officially completed the Ryan Field renovation in the fall of 1997, and the first game in the renamed stadium was against Duke on September 13th. There were new and slightly expanded seating spaces, a widened concourse, a return to natural grass, an impressed box, and a lot more, costing $22 million total. Since then, the field has fallen into disrepair, but it was a sight to behold right after the renovation. The university got stronger, better, uh, is what makes me proud. We preserved strength where we had it, mm -hmm. and we found new strength, you know, when we built on things. And I think it's just uh, recognized as one of America's greatest research universities, but it's preserved teaching. So I think I did my job. Northwestern thought so too, and the university wanted to honor Beanin for his hard work as president. The music school needed a new name, and it's one of the best in the country. It would have been a great tribute. Beanin retired from his position, and in 2008, Northwestern introduced the world to the Henry and Lee Beanin School of Music. I'm very proud that the trustees named the music school for my wife and for me. I mean, probably 
the single greatest pleasure for us is that there's a school named in our honor. Beenan and Northwestern had everything. They often took advantage of the city's leeway, and who could blame them? The council spurned them at times, too. It frustrated some residents, but it was a give and take. Win some, lose some. For Northwestern fans, going to the stadium has always been a lose-lose. That's next time on the Field of Broken Dreams. The Field of Broken Dreams is a podcast from the Evanstonian, the student newspaper at Evanston Township High School. It's advised by John Phillips, with executive editors Jillian Denlow, Claire Gustafson, and Sophia Sherman. The Field of Broken Dreams is reported and produced by me, Mac Jones, with help from Isaac Swarzflint. Our theme music is by Sam Purcell. The final mix of this episode was done by me. We have seven more episodes coming. You'll be able to find them all on our website, evanstonian.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find more stories about Northwestern and other events pertaining to Evanston there, too. Again, it's evanstonian.net. Special thanks to everyone interviewed, Northwestern University, and the Evanston City Council.